Hello and welcome to the very first episode of A Cargo of Bricks. Each week we hope to bring you an informed conversation on some topic of particular interest to people in Northern Ireland. And this week we start by talking to Ian Parsley, who's been writing some of the most insightful and incisive analyses of Northern Ireland's response to COVID-19. Listen, Ian, um, just start us off by giving us some context for uh, coronavirus and and in particular how we've been handling it here in uh, Northern Ireland compared with other places. Yeah, so I mean, the, the, the very origin of this is an infamous uh, announcement from the World Health Organization on the 14th of January that there was no evidence of human-to-human transmission of this uh, new coronavirus and yet it should have been obvious from previous uh, viruses such as SARS uh, that there would be and it just so happens that at that very same time our executive was being re-established after three years and from that point of view, I think we, that meant we had local decision-making in local hands. And it is unimaginable what would have happened if this had hit three months beforehand, because we would then have been left with a kind of not quite direct rule situation. It would have been very unclear who was making the decisions here in Northern Ireland. So from that point of view, we were probably quite lucky. Um, a very important aspect at the very outset of this to, to, to to outline is that our form of devolution is slightly different. Our departments are independent entities, so our ministers operate um, in their own way, and that actually makes a coherent approach to this that bit harder. Um, But I think the response in Northern Ireland broadly has been quite coherent. Um, And in fact, in general terms, although significant mistakes have certainly been made, it has probably been slightly better than the rest of the UK. Well, certainly, uh, from my point of view, looking at Stormont, this is the first time really we've seen Stormont deal with a real problem that is immediate, uh, that has put a threat right across all sections of the population. Uh, And your assessment is that despite the fact that they have this ability to work independently from each other, um, this is almost a departure in terms of uh, how well they've worked. Uh, How do we compare with other countries, though? Well, I mean, I think you're right to use the term Stormont. So it's not just the ministers, it's not just the, the politicians. We have a lot of people um, in the background in our health service in the broadest sense um, who have been working hard. I myself happened to be in the uh, Health and Social Care Board headquarters twice in mid-February and both times I was shuffled into a side room because entire floors had already been handed over at that point. This is before the first case in Northern Ireland to the coronavirus. So that does show that there was planning already in place in Northern Ireland, as there was elsewhere in the UK. Um, And it's a very important aspect that this isn't just about the politicians, although they're very important here, but also about how Stormont works. Because in the context of RHI, there'd been a lot of um, public disgust, frankly, at the ability, not just of local politicians, but of local officials to work effectively on government. And this is a, a, a real opportunity in some ways to show that in fact we can work quite effectively Um, within frameworks that have already been established. We do have contingency plans, we do have plans for pandemics, and those were already in place and already being worked on before we even had a case here in Northern Ireland. So that's important. However, that's that's important to note, but if you look at some of the conversations that we've been having on Slugger, um, Talkback, The Nolan Show, there's often a lot of negative comparison between what we're doing in Northern Ireland and in the wider UK compared to other places. But recently we had a conversation uh, in one of the threads on Slugger and it, it, 
um, Sweden obviously is a bit of a pariah because it's yeah. going its own particular way. And uh, the, one of the readers brought up the, the Finnish statistics. Now, the Finnish statistics are singularly impressive. Mm -hmm. They're almost on a South Korean um, scale. And, of course, when you look, when you look into uh, what the Finns have done, you know, they were very organized, very collected. They used central powers to close the borders, not only just the external borders, but when they had identified certain hotspots in the southern part of the country, they closed the internal borders into that, that area. Mm -hmm. And so we're able to just talk us through a little bit about the about, about some of the, the ways in which some of our European uh, neighbors so, yeah, managed I mean, to get ahead of us. In some ways, Finland compares quite neatly to Ireland. Um, and you could probably argue that the country that compares in you know, similar size to the UK, but has obviously had much better outcomes, is Germany. So the question does arise, well, the UK had a pandemic plan and it was planning way in advance and all of this was set out. So how on earth is it the case that Germany is so far ahead of the UK? And it must be said, the UK's outcomes are similar to Spain's, France's, Italy. So the five big countries in Western Europe, Germany is the outlier in being so much better. How has that happened? Well, I would argue it is because Germany looks at its entire public health system in slightly different terms. Um, public health in Germany is largely run by institutes and foundations. Um, a third of hospitals in Western Germany are actually based in universities. So it's not just a treatment service, it's actually a full health research and treatment system. And so when this virus arrives in Germany, perhaps contrary to many of its neighbours, certainly the larger neighbours, it sought immediately to understand the virus. So it set in track early diagnostics, very quickly trying to isolate, break chains of infection. It did a lot of research very early about how many people are asymptomatic, how many people actually die of this, what are the conditions under which people get infected, do they get infected the same way every time. They knew this months ahead, and I found German-speaking media has understood these things and discussed these things, and it's weeks before you hear them discussed in the English-speaking media. For all that, um, the, the, the fundamental problem, in my view, in the UK was that we were very well prepared for a flu pandemic. And in many ways, that was helpful because we had all these nice models already set out to deal with a flu pandemic. Um, the problem is this isn't flu. So a flu pandemic, for example, generally speaking, is, uh, affects the population relatively evenly. In fact, the Spanish flu affected people 20 to 40, worst. Um, and it can be spread very rapidly by children because they don't have any defense against this. And, you know, if you've got them in the playground and at the school gates, it gets spread very quickly. This is a coronavirus, though, um, and it was shown very quickly that it's most dangerous to older people. Those are the people who tend to tend to die of this, um, fatality rates are much higher. Also, early indications from China, from Korea, that were the best we had, was that in fact it was um, early working age people, about that 20 to 35 age group, who spread it fastest. So they were spreading it, but they weren't the ones suffering from it by and large. Um, so we had set this all out for flu. We even had PPE stockpiles for flu, but actually this was a coronavirus. And my view is that the UK didn't pivot quickly enough and Northern Ireland was guilty of this as well, from recognising that this is actually not flu. Um, it, it thought it was flu. And as late as the 27th of March, you had an advisor at the UK media brief, UK government's media briefing saying testing is something of a sideshow. 
That was because the UK still believed it understood this better than it did. Whereas in Germany, they were immediately doing the research to try to understand this isn't flu, this is some other sort of virus. What is it? What is it doing? How is it behaving? They broke down, their, their testing system was also different um, because they, they based it primarily on whether you had had contact with other people who were infected or if you had been in an area of a cluster rather than how bad your symptoms were. And that immediately meant they broke the change of infection. Uh, whereas in much of the rest of Europe, we were busy just trying to treat it rather than actually breaking the chains of infection, which is why the outcomes in Germany are so much better. And indeed Finland. In fin Finland, if you compare the Finnish figures with the Ireland's figures, I mean the Republic yes. in that case, um, I mean they're just factors and factors uh, of a difference. So in that case, because we've heard a lot of conversation about how uh, Northern Ireland should be following the Republic, but it doesn't seem to me that the outcomes in Ireland and the United Kingdom generally are significantly different. Um, I mean, yes, we got to factor in the fact that London is part of the UK. Mm -hmm. uh, infection rates have been very high there, very highly, not only very high density of population, but a massive population, almost the size of Sweden, which is the largest of the Nordic countries. Yes. Um, so, so there are special issues around that. But say in the southwest of England, barely been heard of. In the northeast, mm -hmm. barely been heard of until recently. But then um, there are kind of outbreaks there. So, uh, what, what do you make of this idea um, that, that that Ireland is performing so much better than the United Kingdom? Ireland versus Northern Ireland, and how helpful do you think those um, comparisons are? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the comparisons are really very helpful at all. I think it's very clear that across the UK and Ireland, this virus has spread very rapidly, probably faster than even in France or Italy or Spain, where they did block in internal borders at some stage. And usually they recognised they would have to do lockdown everywhere pretty quickly afterwards. But even now in Italy, you can't go outside your own region without very good reason. Um, so they understand that you've got to keep the hotspots pinned and not let this spread. So if you look at the the difference in Italy and the UK, Italy had a major problem in Lombardy, which actually tipped the health service over. But actually, in the rest of Italy, outcomes have not been as bad. It's difficult to do comparisons, to be fair, at this stage, because we still don't know the full scale of this. But it looks like outcomes have not been as bad in Italy as they have across the UK. So, and, and the same I would have to say applies, you know, arguably even within Ireland. Uh, you're, you're talking about Finland um, stopping hotspots. You know, Dublin was a hotspot. It then spread up the M2, M3 corridor to Cavan Monon. Um, and you had this sort of argument that was coming across the border. Well, they've accepted it was nothing to do with the border. In fact, that area of Northern Ireland is the least infected. Um, it was up the corridor. So what, why was it up the corridor? If, you, if you'd been following the German system of saying, of trying to break change of infection, you'd been trying to break that. So we've got to understand why that's gone up there. Um, but, you know, Ireland did nothing wrong that the UK didn't also do wrong. I mean, it's, I still think that fundamentally through this, both the UK and Ireland treated this as flu. Even the decision early to close schools or even talk about closing schools in the UK, but Ireland actually did it. That's a flu response. Um, if you close schools, you have to go straight to lockdown. Um, that's what all the modelling for a coronavirus tells you. So both countries were looking at a flu pandemic when actually they were dealing with coronavirus, whereas um, Finland and Germany were realising this is something different. We have to deal with what we have in front of us. So let's move to Northern Ireland and look look at it very specifically. How do you think we've done in Northern Ireland overall? 
Well, I, I think, first of all, we have to outline that we've made a lot of the same mistakes that the rest of the UK has made. Uh, and that's very unfortunate. Um, I think part of that is because we have to go off the same scientific advice. The UK thought and probably does have some of the foremost global experts on this in the world. Um, and that's where the advice was coming from. And Northern Ireland was following that advice. In fact, um, the Irish government was following much of that advice as well. Um, because it, it perceived, we've seen it from Imperial College London, that's globally renowned as a centre for understanding pandemics and, and, and managing pandemics. So that was the advice we were following. One of the big and topical issues that we uh, also made a mistake on was not defending care homes quickly enough, because if it had been a flu pandemic affecting people 20 to 40, you would indeed have to protect your hospitals because your hospitals could become overburdened. You do need Nightingale hospitals. You do need preparation for even bigger health facilities. Um, but if it's a coronavirus, the last thing you want to be doing is pushing people out of hospital into care homes where people who are very vulnerable into the very areas where the thing can spread fastest. And this was a mistake made right across the UK. In fact, in Northern Ireland, overall, it's probably had slightly less effect than elsewhere in the UK. Scotland has been particularly bad. But actually, we made that mistake. Now, we made it on the same basis as the rest of the UK. What frustrates me now is that we have to accept that that was a mistake. Instead of saying, oh, well, no, we didn't really do it and we were trying to help care homes from the start, we need to own the mistake and say, no, no, we didn't realise quickly enough this was a coronavirus pandemic. Whereas in other countries, every country had a problem with care homes because everybody was starting with, with thinking this was like a flu pandemic. Um, but actually, other countries did better at breaking the chains of infection than we did. And we have to own that mistake, not least in case there's a second wave of this. And therein lies the real dilemma here, because we are beginning to talk very ginger gingerly about restarting Mm -hmm. uh, commercial life, uh, which is suffering very badly. The Economist magazine is talking about the we will not return to a full, full economy. It's basically saying that in the best case scenario, it will only, will only be a 90% uh, economy. So there's mm -hmm. a definite imperative there pushing us to get back into this thing. But as you say, as we lift the foot off the, off the brake, um, infections are likely to go up especially in areas that haven't yet been infected. So we might expect London not to yes. be so badly hit in a second wave, but the rest of us who got off quite lightly uh, may yeah. be facing something uh, difficult. And yet we've got to continue our, our lives. And, you know, they're saying mm -hmm. maybe 12 months before this thing plays out, maybe it's 24, maybe it's less if we get a vaccine. Yeah. Maybe we can control better if we get anti antibody tests that are actually reliable. There's no mm. sign of that yet. Um, so how do, we, how do we face up to this next phase? Well, I think here, in fact, Northern Ireland is doing all the right things at the moment. Um, firstly, you have to understand how the virus actually behaves. So you could argue that now we are operating better with that understanding. So if you take what happened with step one, I mean, it's, it's the old Gaelic phrase, um, a good start's half the work. Um, actually, you have to start out of lockdown. A lot of people are actually comfortable in lockdown. A lot of people are really not comfortable at all. And we, we're probably understating the damage it's causing, particularly psychiatrically. Yes. But there are other people actually who find this actually fairly easy. It's easy to understand lockdown. Once you start moving out, it becomes complicated. And 
as human beings, we don't like complications. Um, so actually just getting to step one, although with one exception, but I think the exception is interesting, um, is a good thing because it means we've moved, whereas Scotland has perhaps been a bit wary of moving, and maybe it has a higher rate of infection and there are good reasons for that, but we've moved. So we're beginning the process. Once you've started the process, you have to continue the process. The only thing that was not allowed uh, as part of step one was the visits, home visits. And that is completely in line with the scientific evidence because the scientific evidence is increasingly showing that infections are most dangerous indoors. So we went ahead and allowed the outdoor activities. So golf courses, roping, tennis, fishing, meeting up to six people. Um, but actually the home visits were delayed. And also we have to work out that we don't want a situation where people who have received shielding letters are penalized and perceive that they're suddenly being left behind for 12 to 24 months while the rest of us get on with our lives. But we have to balance that with the requirement to let people get on with their lives. So I think they were right to think, well, how are we managing that shielding lane um, before we start doing something that would cause an exception where you can have home visits except for people who are shielding? So I think that was correct. So I think there's a lot of evidence that in some ways the requirement in Northern Ireland to have consensus rather than be controlled by a single prime minister or first minister is working better because people are having to consider things in more detail and consider the evidence in front of them in more detail before decisions are made. Whereas in England, you're getting a situation where even cabinet ministers are complaining privately that they're not actually being told before Boris Johnson goes on television and tells the country what he's doing. Um, that's not happening in Northern Ireland. Decisions are, are, you know, there's always the difficulties in the executive of, of transparency and all of that, which uh, have been going on since it, since it was formed in 1999. But uh, actually, we are going with the evidence very clearly and you see um, consideration being given to the, the need to go as closely as possible with the rest of the island because we're a geographical unit. It makes sense to move at more or less the same speed as best we can. But we're also doing things that are more or less in line with Scotland as it happens, such as the school reopenings, recognising that our, our holidays are different from those in England and recognising that it's a good thing if we can do some blended learning earlier in August. Um, and both Scotland and Northern Ireland have come to that conclusion. So we're doing a lot of things, recognising the value of doing them in line with our neighbours, um, but also recognising that the scientific evidence is leaning in different directions and, and, and varies. The thing that very concerns me about this is that a lot of people, particularly in politics, will hold a position that they held in February at the start of this and not be prepared to change it as the evidence changes. But with this thing, this is new. Um, we're still learning a lot about it, and that means we need to change our response to it, even as individual citizens, but certainly as politicians, as we learn more. And that's one of the things that you pointed out, particularly about Germany, but also Finland. This commitment to learning new things about something that you have to admit in the first place you don't know about. One mm -hmm. of the things I think that terrifies a lot of people is the fact that we simply don't know so much about yeah. this thing. Um, testing and tracing was given up very early on in this uh, in the mm -hmm. UK. Um, testing capacity is very low, even in the Republic. But it seems to me that when we lift properly, we've got to be able to give people some sense of what kind of risk they are taking by sending mm -hmm. the kids back to school, by going out and doing things, by meeting members of their wider family, although not hugging, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, what kind of role do you think tra uh, testing and tracing is going to play in yeah. how we manage this thing going forward? 
Well, I, I think this is the biggest flaw in the in the UK response. Um, although you know there are arguments to be had about whether it was uh, necessary, given low testing capacity at the beginning of March, to uh, remove testing in all cases of symptoms and to stop tracing. Um, the fact is, we we need to restart. I always use as an analogy pulling out of a side road onto the main road. You have to get onto the main road, but you can only pull out once you can see. So the first thing is you need to demist your windows so you can see, and then you need to check and be able to ensure, ensure you have the visibility to check that nothing's coming. At the moment, I think the rest of the UK is pulling out with the windows not even demisted. I think Northern Ireland has started the uh, tracing at a relatively low level, but we've started the tracing. That at least means the windows are demisted. We can't quite see yet what's going on, but we can sort of nudge out and just have a look down the road now. Um, and, but testing and tracing is absolutely essential to this, and I wouldn't be carried away by apps and all of that. That's all very exciting, and it may well be a useful tool, but the fundamental basic idea of finding out who people who test positive um, we're in touch with um, will teach us a lot about the virus, not just about isolating cases, because we will be able to find out, well, how is this thing actually transmitted? When is it transmitted dangerously? All of that, but I think you just have to do most of that human to human. We found interestingly, there is, people don't talk about this, there is British sovereign territory near here where there have been no cases for three weeks, and that's Guernsey. There are only two cases left. They maintained contact tracing throughout. They didn't stop, and they've managed to isolate it to the extent that, a bit like we often hear about New Zealand or also Slovenia, the thing is now eliminated. Um, doesn't mean it's gone away forever, but it means that it's it's eliminated from the community. They did that, like that. Based by understanding what was going on and then being able to raise lockdown a bit faster. So it seems to me that there is a suspicion, I think, that we've been doing, and I think this applies to both the UK and to Ireland, that we've been doing testing in order to get the numbers up so that we mm -hmm. have a good political story rather than doing it I mean, it's nearly three weeks now since Michael Martin uh, asked for yes. um, random testing around the Republic so they could actually tell where the hotspots were before the infections got out of control. The reason why we know, or Philip McGuinness at uh, Dundalk Institute of Technology knows, that there's a hotspot in Cavan is because there's lots of people who are ill in Cavan who've got COVID-19. Yes. Whereas if you do testing and tracing, you get a sense of where it's growing, where you need to shut down early, and mm -hmm. then you can start doing some kind of differential regional policy rather than just doing everything on a national scale. And okay. as you rightly said, you know, you you let the the disease then kind of leak up main uh, main arteries of the uh, the country uh, mm -hmm. before anybody knows it. Final final few thoughts. Ian? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say I think. Ireland was right to attempt to maintain the testing and tracing, but it had to recognise that its capacity was limited. If you, if you recall, they were going for 17,000 tests a day at one stage, very early, um, and they were nowhere near that by the time they were maintaining the tracing, which meant that actually they ended up with a backlog um, where, even, um, where people were even nearly three weeks before they knew what the result of the test was. And obviously that's hopeless. I think the most important thing, uh, probably for listeners to take away from this, is we have to recall that infectiousness is highest before we show symptoms. The day before, actually, is the most infectious day. Um, there's very little infectiousness after the fourth day of symptoms. So there is no point in testing somebody because they have symptoms and then telling them the result four days later, because they're not infectious, they're barely infectious anymore. 
Um, and and that, 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 just to interrupt quickly, yeah. that is the circumstances under which most tests were carried out. It, it's exactly, and, and it's also the problem in care homes. You, you, we, we didn't, you know, three weeks ago, people were talking, you need to test care home staff, regardless of whether they have symptoms, because you don't know. Many of them are young anyway. They may be asymptomatic. They may never have symptoms, but still be carrying the virus in, and it's a danger to the people who are in the care homes. You can't just go off symptoms. You have to go of trying to break the chain of infections by mass testing, essentially. And that is ultimately the way out of this. That's brilliant, Ian. Listen, I think we're going to have to come around and do this one again uh, at some point <laughs> in the next few weeks or so. There are yes. so many things that we haven't had time to cover. Um, but thank you so much, Ian Parsley, uh, for being the first guest on this uh, <laughs> Sluggers series of short podcasts. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>